lead. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins at a half length to Viander Cross in a bumping finish. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and the High Gang Group. Talk to any country owner or trainer and they'll tell you the Tab Highway concept is bigger than the Everest. As soon as a horse strikes form in a country region, the trainer starts thumbing through the Racing New South Wales monthly magazine looking for a suitable Tab Highway at Randwick or Rose Hill. The owners of those horses can't wait to spend a weekend in the city and many of them are constantly trying to source the right kind of horse for future highways. A highway win has become a badge of honour for bush trainers who now have the opportunity to stand in the winner's circle on a major Sydney track. Most weeks, the highways prove to be great betting mediums and the stories they produce for journalists and commentators are never-ending. There's often an entertaining yarn to come out of the weekly tab highway. The Midways cater for city and provincial stables whose horses meet the criteria. The tab highways are plainly and simply for the bushies, from the Riverina to the Western Districts, from the Hunter Valley to the Northern Rivers and the Tablelands. And all points in between, there are highway horses awaiting the call. There must have been some anxious moments for Cliff Brown and his wife Jo in 2008 when they decided to move their young family from Victoria to Singapore. Cliff was 38, he'd already trained five Group 1 winners in Australia, but felt an overseas experience would add the finishing touches to his training skills. As it turned out, the Browns would fall in love with Singapore. They enjoyed life in the highly developed island city and after a slow start, gradually established themselves in the vibrant racing industry of the pre-COVID era. For most of his 13 years there, Cliff occupied a prominent spot on the Singapore Trainers' Premiership ladder and enjoyed regular success at the elite level. The children India, who's now 23, Harvey, who's now 20, and Felix, who was now 16, enjoyed their formative years in this fascinating part of the world. At the height of the pandemic, Singapore racing went into a long and soul-destroying lockdown. It resumed some time ago under strict biosecurity measures and only welcomed crowds back to the track as recently as April of 2022. With the future uncertain, Cliff made the decision to return to his native Victoria in March of last year and start all over again. He brought seven horses with him one of which has turned out to be the surprise packet of the decade. Following some brilliant performances in Melbourne, the Inferno was invited to run in the Everest. It's taken Cliff and his loyal staff a full year to establish themselves among Victoria's powerful training ranks. Let's have a yarn with the man who freely admits he was a pretty plain trainer in the early years. Cliff Brown, welcome to the podcast. Hello, John. How are you? Yep, no, magnificent voice you've got. Great to listen to that. 
Thank you, Cliff, and uh, it's all true and I meant every word of it and it's great to catch up, mate, after all these years. I know COVID wreaked havoc in the Singapore racing industry and you had little option but to move on, but not without regrets. Oh, 100%, John. You know, that's right. I mean, it, it did really affect the industry. I think for Joe and I, the biggest factor in our return home was the – we had the two oldest kids, India and Harvey, were in uh, – in Australia, at uh, Harvey was just finishing school. India was at, at university, and both were draw. Uh, no, Harvey might. No, no, they were both at uni. Sorry, John. Were they? And yeah. uh, and they were driving, living their own independent lives, which is great. But the fear for Joe and I became that if something went wrong, and you know, one of them had a bad accident, mm. uh, we couldn't get home. There was no way we could get back. You know, you had this belief early days that. You know, it'll be over soon or the government will let you back or whatever. But it just became, you know, more and more clear clear as each uh, sort of day went on that if anything did go horribly wrong, we couldn't get back. And then even if we did get back, we'd have two weeks quarantine. And yeah. I think for Joe and I, that just wore us down in the end, the worry of that. And we said, no, enough's enough. We need to get home and see them. And, and that was the biggest reason for the return home. Mm. What sort of numbers were you training in Singapore pre-COVID? I had 50. Or, you know, we built up from, from a small number up to 50. Mm. And what was the composition of your clientele? Some locals, some Aussies? Uh, very much so, yeah. Some locals, um, you know, some of my best friends now are, are, are people I met over there that are Singaporean. And, uh, you know, some people went with me who I trained for, Greg Perry, you know, who races a lot of horses now. He raced horses with me in Australia and then came to Singapore and now I'm training for him again back in Australia. You know, he's never left after mm. 25 years. And, and Glenn Wittenbury came on board, uh, Rod Highland and some lovely people in Singapore, the Yong family mm. and another guy, Peter Lee. So, you know, always tremendous supporters, great people. What were the logistics of bringing seven horses back to Australia? That must have been a pretty expensive exercise. Yeah, look, it was. I mean, they were owned by... Uh, uh, um, Rod Highland, a terrific bloke, who, an Aussie guy, lives in Singapore. And when I said I was coming back, he said, "We'll take him back with you, you know." And I'm happy to help get you going. And a, a, a really remarkable guy, you know. And and um, his racing manager, Josh McLaughlin, the same. You know, they were all for it. Um, and Glenn Whittenbury sent the Inferno home, and and that's how they did it. But they they you know were happy to pay and and do all those associated costs, and away we went. You produced consistent results for most of your 13 years up there, usually finishing in the top five or six, and your Group 1 tally got into the double figures. Yeah, look, it did, John. It was a very slow process to get going and get started. and You know, it took a while, uh, but by the end it was really good. You know, the last sort of five or six years were very good mm. and we were very fortunate to have some nice horses. Training facilities at Cranji are apparently very, very good. But the one thing you missed the whole time you were there was a paddock, a beautiful, safe, sunlit, grassy paddock. And for a boy from Narbathong, that must have been a thorn in the side. Uh, yeah, look, it was. I mean, it was one of those things that before I left, I... I uh, couldn't get my head around how I would work those things when they're having a break. Mm. Um, but you do learn to work around it and you do, you are able to freshen the horses up even though they're in boxes. You know, 
the one thing about the Turf Club, as you said before in Singapore, you know, the facilities are amazing. Um, mm. They have every conceivable thing that you need. You are able to take them for long walks and plenty of areas to have a pick. And, you know, by the end of it, I could take a horse that had had a hard campaign and freshen it up and mentally get it back where it needed to be. Mm. Uh, I actually think as far as training goes, training in that environment improved me significantly. At the time you arrived in Singapore, the equine population in parts of Australia was still reeling from the effects of that awful equine influenza. Now, what was the situation in Singapore when you got there? It hadn't been there at all, had it? No, look, it hadn't, and it, and it never actually got there. Mm. Uh, the problem was we were booked to go. You know, we, we'd have everything organised, Joe and I, the three kids, and I took... Uh, Tim and Chris with me who, who worked for me the whole time I was in Singapore the 13 years mm. and uh, we headed off and oh, look in fairness probably two weeks before we were due to go uh, they locked everything down uh, because of EI maybe it was a bit longer I might have my timing wrong mm. but I thought no look we'll go it won't be long and we, well of course it was nine months before we could get a horse and I oh, think it was a very you you, uh, you look back now, and while it was very stressful, you do look back now, it was a very, very funny period. You know, there were three of us trying to look after one horse. And, uh, <laughs> the, the first horse we had, we grew to two horses after three or four months, and mm. then the first horse we had got taken off us, so that was a, a learning curve. We were back to one, and, mm. and, and look, progressively we got there, but, you know, looking back now, it was very funny. Slow start. Oh, it, was, it was slower than slow. Yeah, it was yeah. snail speed. So they were able to keep EI out of Singapore? Yes, they were. But by keeping it out, there was no uh, movements between the two countries, Australia and Singapore. And as a result, I had 17 horses to come up mm. and uh, none of them were able to for that, that sort of eight-month period, then a month quarantine, and mm. then they came in. So, no, look, it was very difficult. Cliff, let's look at some of the nice horses you got to train in Singapore. Now, after a frustrating run of minor placings in the big races, you finally cracked it in the Singapore Derby of 2011 with a horse called Clint, beautifully ridden by a former Sydney jockey, Johnny Powell. I watched the replay the other day. He came around one horse in the race after travelling fifth or sixth near the fence most of the way. That's right. And look, Johnny's a really... Wonderful person, a terrific bloke. Um, he would go out of his way to uh, to help anyone. John, I, you know, really mm. great fella. Uh, rode it beautifully. Horse was the most lovely, kind horse, and uh, a great day. Yep, for special. Now, Johnny Powell uh, suffered a serious illness, didn't he, some time ago? But I think he's riding again. Is he? I didn't know that. Well, Cliff, I'm not certain, but I did hear on the grapevine that he was, if not riding, he was contemplating a comeback. Yeah, right. Oh, that'd be good. No, he's a beautiful rider, John. Uh, And as I said before, a great person. You loved a horse called Zach Spirit, who won 11 from 22 and a lot of money. You bought him at an English Easter sale for 140,000. He turned out to be a ripper. Uh, tremendous horse, John. Absolutely fantastic horse. Proper, uh, you know, I, I firmly believe he would have been a Group 1 sprinter in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a really decent, decent horse, and he, he battled injuries his whole, um, whole life. He had three knee surgeries during that period. Uh, 
Mm. And at one point, we did a surgery, uh, had a fantastic surgeon in Singapore called Dan Shaw. Mm. And uh, we sent him, did the surgery, uh, gave him probably a month back in Australia. Then we put him back on a, sorry, a month quarantine in Singapore. And then uh, on a plane back to Australia for six months, or th- then back to Singapore. And he then came out and won Group 1s again. So he, he was a, a really decent, decent horse and a great nature. He's actually up at Newhaven Park now with Johnny Kelly. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a nanny for the weanlings up there. He's a lovely horse. He's a chaperone. He is indeed. He won the famous Lion City Cup in 2016, Group 1, of course. And that seems to be the goal of most Singaporean owners. It's a very famous race. Yeah, it's a great race. It's probably too the, the the Lion City Cup and the Gold Cup, and uh, yeah, no, he was a, he was a remarkable horse, just a very very good horse. Mm. Now there's another one here, Cliff, with a curious name, Laughing Gravy. Uh, you got him to win the Group One Queen Elizabeth Two Cup in 2016, and who was the jockey, the recently retired Bossy? Yeah, that's right. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, Great big race rider, Glenn. Now he was he was owned by a group of ex guys, Nick Johnson, Paul Robbins, um, terrific guys. Another guy who I mentioned earlier, Peter Lee, was in it. Who's still uh, got horses with me now back in Australia. Mm. Uh, the name comes from a Laurel and Hardy movie or skit or something. So mm. that's how he got his name. Lovely horse, gentleman. Um, and has a great life now. He's at the National Equestrian Centre and, and doing really well in the show jumping. He had another crack at the QE2 Cup the following year and ran second. Yeah, yeah. Look, he was a, a good, consistent horse. Um, yeah, no, nice horse. And Debt Collector, who won 12 races. He was Singapore Horse of the Year in 2016. He won three Group 1s in that year. Couldn't he dash? Uh, he could, yeah. He was an amazingly talented horse. Uh, you know, really, really proper horse. You know, he raced in Australia with a good friend of mine, Jim Conlon, but by the time he got to Jim, he'd had enough. Mm. So it wasn't fair on Jim and it wasn't fair on the horse when you look back now. Yeah. Uh, really good horse. John loved him to bits and uh, amazing. You've always said the best horse you saw in Singapore was Rocket Man, who posted an astonishing record. He won 20 races five placings from only 25 starts. I think there were six Group 1s in there. And Cliff, is it a fact that he won the Lion City Cup four times? Uh, yeah, outstanding horse. Um, tremendous talent. Yeah, amazing, amazing horse. Um, you know, he would have won anything you wanted back here. I mean, he won a Dub- on Dubai World Cup night. He was he was freakishly good. Mm. Rocket man. And, and, yeah, exactly. And trained by a tremendous bloke in Pat Shaw, who's one of the good mates. And, and you sit here talking to you now and you mention these people and, and they are really good friends that you, you, you know, mm. you still talk to and, and wonderful people. Vlad Durek did a great job for you up there and so did Michael Rod, who cleared out when that lockdown looked as though it might never end. He got back to Melbourne. Yes, he did. Uh same thing, you know. It was it was very difficult to hear. Uh, Michael he had a young family, and that and look, I had a lot of uh, great days with Michael, and he is just one of the most outstanding people you'd ever meet. Now to the Inferno, Cliff, who raced as Inferno in Singapore, 
He won eight out of nine up there, including the Group 1 Singapore Guineas and the Lion City Cup. I had a look at his Lion City win the other day on YouTube and he just blew him away with Vlad Durek in the saddle. He was very wide on the turn, but he let down like a real Group 1 horse. Uh, he is a yeah, yeah, I think he's sort of shown here um he is up to that level. We've got to win one still. It's easy to say you're up to it. Mm. Uh but you know, really genuine nice horse. And I I've not yet in the sort of sort of nine months I've had him in training or, or thereabouts, I've not had a period where everything's gone smoothly, so I look forward to that if it ever happens. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, you know, it's like when you've trained horses yourself, which you have. You have those, you know, odd horse that nothing seems to go right. Well, he's one of those. Mm. Um, tremendously talented, and I hope that one day he does get to show what he can really do. Mm. He was brilliant in winning second up in the McEwen Stakes in Melbourne and equally brilliant running second and a very <laughs> close second to Wild Ruler in the Moyer Stakes. Now, Cliff, how did the Everest invitation play out? How did you find out? No, look, we, we got a call and, um, uh, you know, I, I then just said, look, it's best you talk to uh, the owner, Glenn Whittenbury, and work it out. Mm. Um, so the, the two of them just uh, just did that and that, that's how it came, it came about. No, it was, it was good, very good. Mm. You had two things against you in the Everest, a soft five track, and a hopeless barrier draw. He beat a couple home, and he was far from disgraced. No, look, he, he actually ran pretty well. I mean, the track, oh, I think, was actually probably a little bit worse than a soft five. It was quite sticky, and mm. he didn't appreciate it all, and he never sort of got into a, a, a rhythm. And I actually felt, you know, he would run better. And for James Heron, who had been absolutely faultless in all the dealings, I felt really bad for them on the day. I really did. I thought we'd sort of let them down, not that the horse did, but the way it had all played out. So, um, yeah, mm. hopefully one day we can pay them back. Well, you freshened him up after the Everest and he resumed in the Lightning, won by Home Affairs in February. You must have felt sick when he clipped uh, Profiteer's heels early in the race and Cliffy all but hit the deck. Yeah, 100%. Look, Profiteer just, just went straight in front of him. Um, it was extraordinary. And uh, uh, he was very, very fortunate to stay on his feet. You know, um, I'm by nature a pretty pessimistic sort of person. Uh, and my son, Harvey, is, is the complete polar opposite, which is a good thing for him. You know, and he said to me after, he said, oh, well, Dad, at least we get to take him home. And he was 100% right, you know. He already found the positive out of it all. And uh, But he did take, you know, a good week to 10 days to get over it. He was quite sore. You grew up in a little place called Narbathong, about 80 kilometres from Melbourne, where your dad, Don, bred a few horses. Now, you tell me Don was a property developer and not a hands-on horseman, but he was fascinated with thoroughbred pedigrees. He was the Bruce Lowe of his day, wasn't he? Yeah, and amazing. Yeah, he was. Look, Narbathong, firstly, is... Uh, uh, yeah, it'll always be home. It's, it's a really special place. Um yeah, I do love it up there. Uh, we don't have the farm anymore, but the actual place, I love it. Uh, and Dad Dad was remarkable. You know, he never had a big um, big number of mares or anything like that, and he had his theories, and he just bred really nice horses on a regular, regular basis from small numbers. Mm. It was remarkable. You were virtually self-taught as a trainer. Did you have any mentoring at all? 
Yeah, I did. Yeah, no, I was fortunate that I, I had some um, some really good people that I worked for. I worked, Dad used to have his horses originally trained by a guy called Ted Harvey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they had great success together. And Ted, I used to go to on school holidays and, and stay with he and Jan. And uh, I think from Ted, you, you learn things from different people, but Ted was was meticulous in everything he did. And I think that's one thing I, I did learn off him. Um, and then I worked for a guy called Rob McGuinness at Caulfield. Mm. And, you know, I'm still very good friends with Rob and, he's, and one of his kids lived in Singapore or still does. And, yeah, uh, Rob was just a great bloke, a, a teacher. Any questions you had, he'd answer. And yeah, really good trainer and and very good punting trainer, Rob. So no, I was mm. fortunate to have those two people in my life. They were great. You trained a horse for your dad by the name of Average Game, who won only one race, but it was a good race. It was a two-year-old event at Caulfield. Might have been a Group Three, and he won it easily too. Now he was by Century, out of an imported English mare. Good pedigree, and Don thought he was worth a shot as a home sire. Yeah, 100%. Look, in fairness, I never trained him uh, to win a race. That was Ted Harvey, and, mm. and he and Dad in the debutant stakes had an amazing day that day. Mm. Uh, but but Dad did love his pedigree, always did, and he said, no, no, we'll serve a few mares ourselves. And we had a, a guy at the farm, Mark Corwell, uh, who was still great, mates with you know we had dinner a couple of weeks ago and mm. and he um said oh well he could do it so mark took over and away we went and uh, look I, I can't remember the exact actual fold numbers for those first few, few crops before he died but yeah. he uh he threw some remarkable horses well one of them was your first group one winner cheviot who was out of a maiden mare by soretto cheviot won three races at mooney valley and flemington before winning the 1996 South Australian Derby with a very, very good rider on board, now retired, Damien Brown. Uh, yeah, great day. Um, look, we never had big numbers at the farm. You know, we might have trained 10 horses at a time or 12. I remember we just sold a horse to Hong Kong called Ramley, which which Dad bred as well. And, um, you know, I think the mother cost Dad $900 and he needed the pedigree, wanted the pedigree, and the mayor had a sway back. And he said to the mm. bloodstock agent, Kevin Dagg, look, I don't care what it looks like. I, I just need it to send to Rami. Mm. And that resulted in this Ramley. Well, he was sold to Hong Kong. And I thought, well, that's my good horse gone. And I didn't realize in the box at the time was a two year old called Cheviot. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he was a remarkable horse, really good horse. And you've got to. You've got to remember these horses. I was a kid training them, and and really, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm still not convinced I do today, but mm. I certainly knew far less then than I do today. So, what they did, uh, I think they were self-taught. Mm. What happened? Uh, he ran in the Melbourne Cup uh, yep. the same year that he won the Derby, and he finished unplaced. And he disappeared then for a long time. Did he have problems? Yeah, he did. Look, I, I, I you know. Um, I can't remember the exact order of everything or timeline, but he did do a tendon twice. He then had colic surgery, mm. uh, and then he did come back and eventually won a Sandown Cup, but mm. he, he, he was a brave, tough warrior. Cheviot, yep. Yes, yep. Now, Cliff, the Sandown Cup win you've mentioned, he was ridden by C. Swan. Yeah. Now, is that Cameron Swan who now works for Chris Lees at Newcastle? Yeah, that's him. That's him, you know. <laughs> um, he's a, an absolute character, Swanee. Uh, yeah. 
So he, he was riding, I think, for Chris Lees as an apprentice. Mm. Came to the, through a friend of a friend of Dad's. He came to the farm for a couple of months. and Oh, God, he was a character. Mm. Um, anyway, eventually, you know, we had the run in the Sandown Cup. Swanee rode it and got the win. Gee, I can't wait to run into him. <laughs> yeah, no, terrific, <laughs> terrific guy. Following on Cheviot's heels was Tarn Per Lane, also a son of average game. He had 29 starts. He won four. He placed in 10. He won $700,000. He won a two-year-old race at Hamilton. He didn't win again for almost a year when he won the Autumn Stakes at Caulfield. Then he ran third in the Australian Guineas, the Autumn Classic and the Farlap Stakes at Rose Hill. And then he went into the Rose Hill Guineas with Darren Beedman up. And this was a hell of a day for young Cliff Brown. Yeah, great day. Look, uh, without a doubt, John, in the history of Australian racing, probably the worst trained horse ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, look, I, I, I was, look, young, enthusiastic and pretty stupid, I suppose. Um, he was mm. so badly trained. You know, if the, you listen to the races, I ran him in. I mean, the poor thing must have been dizzy. Yeah. Uh, there was no no planning involved. Uh, nothing. It was just all oh, that race is on. Let's get the car and fight. Let's go. Then we'll go there. And yeah. oh, you look back now. John, he should have won five group ones, not one. He was a really remarkable, decent horse, which mm. I completely buggered up his training. Well, Cliff, I've, I've interviewed four thousand trainers. <laughs> I've never heard one uh, admit the error of his ways early in the in his career. Oh no! Look, sadly, even in the early stages of my career, and even. With the Inferno now, I still make mistakes. So, uh, mm. yeah, yeah no, no, there's no rocket scientist here. <laughs> well, he won, and a brilliant win it was too with Darren Beedman up. Darren obviously couldn't ride him in the AJC derby. Greg Childs took over. Now, Cliff, as you'd recall, this was one of the roughest derbies ever run at Randwick. You finished fifth. You were right in the middle of the interference. It was a demolition derby. Ebony Grove won it. He missed all the trouble. Uh, absolutely. Look, we got skittled several times in the straight, so uh, I'm probably not convinced he stayed the trip, but he certainly didn't have an opportunity to see if he could either. Mm. He won one more race after that uh, autumn campaign in 10 starts, and that was the Memsey. But he did run second in an Epsom, and he did run third in a Group 1 Yalumba Stakes. Yeah, look, I, th I think any of those runs, and quite honestly, I I'm repeating myself, but there was no planning, no nothing. You know, the poor thing was just put in every race that was available, and, and he just kept turning up and competing and, and running very, very well. Mm. You tried a number of his progeny later, but yes. he failed to produce anything within cooey of his own great ability. Uh, 100%. No, no. Look, it was it was actually a, 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 um, a really interesting thing because Dad said, look, I'm not convinced on his pedigree, but we'll see. And and it was a, a really trying time because we went from always having a nice horse in work from, you know, with the matings that Dad would do to putting every mare and foal to him. And, you know, if the stand doesn't work, suddenly everything you have in work is, is next to useless and, we were just went into the wilderness, and and um, that was the end, really. Yeah, it was it was very difficult after that because you'd sort of destroyed your mares, 
and uh, nothing was really going the way you wanted it at that point at the racetrack either because the progeny weren't good enough. Mm. Getting back to the Rose Hill Guineas and uh, the fact that Darren Biedman had the mount that day, Biedman was right at the top of his game uh, in that era and uh, he'd have been delighted to win the race for you. Uh, Yeah. You know, I've mentioned before you I've met some great people and everything like that, and he he's one of the legends of our industry, isn't he? He's uh, he's remarkable, Darren. And you're right; he, there was no one riding better, was there? He was he was really on song. Around the same time, you had a very dour horse called Markham uh, going really well. He won three straight in the autumn of 1997. He won a Class Two at Ballarat. He won the Verve Clico at Morfordville with Shane Dye on board. And then he won the South Australian Derby with Jason Holder in the saddle. And it was a very easy win in the Derby. Yeah, really very, very decent horse um, by Salieri, who was a, a tremendous team. Mm. Um, I remember when Shane won that Verve Clico, he, um, he came in and he said, oh, that, that you know, fantastic win. Well, I said, well, he's in the Derby. Do you want to ride it? Mm. And uh, he said, "No, I can't. I'm riding. I think it was a complice in the Doom at ten thousand. Mm. And I said, "Oh, you don't think he he can win then?" And he goes, "Oh no, no, you win the Derby by however far you want. Don't worry about it." He said, "But I've got to ride a complice." Mm. And uh, that was the one thing about Shane. I, I won from very very few rides that he would have had for me. I won a lot of races and group races, and uh, mm. his form was meticulous, and his judgment and his uh, self belief was incredible. Yeah, and he knew what he was talking about with accomplice because that horse won the Doombin 10,000, which was the last Group 1 of the year, I recall, and I think it was Dye's 10th Group 1 win in that particular season. That was his best season ever. Yeah, right, well, there you go. But, uh, yep, no, amazing. Um, You know, I've got a great story about Shane. He's a a really good fella. Mm. Well, just pause for a moment, Cliff, to... Clear a commitment on the podcast, and when we come back, we'll talk about Markham's Melbourne Cup tilt uh, after his win in the South Australian Derby. Back with Cliff after this. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30ml of Recuperate drawn from the 500ml bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. Cliff Brown is my special guest and we're talking about his South Australian derby winner Markham who didn't actually win again after that derby, but he did run fourth in the Caulfield Cup and a mighty third in the Melbourne Cup behind Might and Power and Doremus. And Cliff, the margins were a nose and a half length. It was almost as good as a win. 
look, can, can I take you back to the very beginnings with Markham, and then I'll mm. talk about his Melbourne Cup. Yeah. And I, I'll bore you senseless for a minute, John. <laughs> I went to the races at Kilmore with him, and he'd won a, a trial. And there was a, a young guy walking around with a stethoscope, and uh, he said, "Look, can I listen to your horse's heart on?" I'm doing a PhD on, you know, equine racehorse hearts. And, and as part of it, I, I need to listen to as many as I can. I said, help yourself. Mm. Anyway, I listened to it. This is before I'd raced. And uh, and as I said, I'd want to jump out, and I was reasonably confident that mm. uh, it would be hard to beat. Anyway, he came and he listened to it, and he walked over, and he said, well, unfortunately, your horse has an irregular heartbeat. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it, it's, you know, it's not. Uh, regular, it, it is missing a beat here and there, and he said uh, it won't run well. And I remember I said to him, "My oh, mate, this will run very well. Don't worry about it." <laughs> and he said, "Well, I can assure you it won't." I said, "Okay, whatever." And uh, I ran tailed off last. Well, I, I I came back. I couldn't find him quick enough. Oh. Uh, so um, you know, I profusely apologised and. Uh, uh, and then he explained what we needed to do to fix it and how his professor could fix it. So we went through that whole process. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of those random situations that I think if I'd never come across that guy, we would never have known um, how good he was. Mm-hmm. And and but for that intervention, yeah, you probably wouldn't have known about him. And you, he, you, sorry, are you at liberty to tell us what you did to fix it? Oh, Hundred percent, yeah, yeah, no issue at all. I was just was, was, mm. would have made the story even longer. Mm. Um, we was he was actually dripped with quinine, mm. and they hooked the ECG up to him, and the uh, quinine was put through a drip. You could see his heartbeat was irregular, and over a period of the drip going through, the the heart then became a regular beat, mm. and the drip was removed. Removed, and I remember the professor. Uh, just said to me, the only instruction I can give you is he can never go for a spell. And he said, because there's a fair chance that when he's at rest for a long period of time, the, the heartbeat will revert. Mm. And he did have to have a rest at one point. I think he chipped a knee or something like that. Mm. And true to his word, when he was out spelling, the heart uh, became irregular and we had to repeat the process. Goodness me. Now, that drug you're talking about, quinine, is used to this day, isn't it, uh, in the reversal process after horses have suffered heart arrhythmia? Well, there you go. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so he obviously had a form uh, of atrial fibrillation. Yes, that's correct. Your horse, yeah. What yep. about the Melbourne Cup? Where did you watch the race? Were you on a TV monitor or up in no, the stand? I was up in the stand and, and I just remember... I was just so excited, you know, I really was. And I think the funniest part about it was, was I, I was convinced that I'd win one very quickly. You know, it had just happened. Mm. Um, I'd gone close and then, yep, yep, we'll win one. And it just shows you how hard it is because I've never been close again. Mm. A nose by half a length. He wasn't very far away. I think Mick yeah. Dittman rode him in that cup. Uh, he did. And he said, look, I would have won, but I got held up from the 800 to the 600 when I needed to be going forward. Did he? So, uh, and yeah, I mean, you were beaten by two superstars too. Mm, absolutely. Now, Blue Murder. Yeah. Is it true he was a 14-start maiden when he won the South Australian Derby in the year 2000, your third Derby in Adelaide? Yeah, 100% he was. You know, he was owned by Greg Perry and a guy called uh, Leah Frate. Um 
and he was, you know, we just got into the race. He'd actually run very well in the lead up, but it wasn't a you know particularly strong year, which you can get in any race. And uh, we were the recipients of that good fortune. Mm. He did run 14 placings, Blue Murder. He paid his way, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Look, he was a nice, kind horse as well. And, uh, you know, he, he did a good job. I mean, not many horses win a group one. We probably were very fortunate too. But, you know, we're very thankful as well. Now, Matthew Gatt was his jockey that day. He was an affable, likeable, smiling young bloke. He's disappeared from the racing scene. Yeah, look, I don't know where Matty is, to be honest. Um, no, I don't know what he's up to, but he was. He was a really nice, polite, good guy. Mm. You had another crack at the South Australian Derby as recently as May 14, and you ran second with Yaffet. Uh, a strong second, too, to Jungle Magnate. By gee, he hit the line, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He's a he's a lovely horse. Um, I think he does have a good future, and I think this year's derby was quite strong. So, uh, you know, I, I think he has a, a good future, and, yeah, I'm excited to see what he can actually do, that horse, yeah. Mm. In keeping with your talent for training stayers, you bobbed up in the 2002 Adelaide Cup with a horse called the A-Train, ridden to perfection by Stephen Baster. He'd won a long race at Flemington before going to Adelaide. Yeah, he had. He was a same uh, nice, kind horse, uh, just wanted to stay all day, had a beautiful run in the Adelaide Cup. You know, Stephen rode it beautifully. And good, good, uh, owned by Hilton Mackley, a lovely man, and um, it was a good day. You know, there, there were always good days those days, and, and he was a, a nice horse, probably also a year where the Adelaide Cup wasn't so strong, mm. And uh, but, but we were fortunate to win one. You're one of many trainers at Mornington nowadays, Cliff. It's a very popular venue with outstanding on-track facilities and a beach if you need it. Firstly, how many trainers operate at Mornington? Oh, to be honest, John, I'm not sure. No, I really don't know the exact number. There's a good group of them. They're all a good group of people. Mm. Um, no, it's good. No, they're a good group, good bunch, um, yeah. And what are the facilities available to you? Uh, look, you know, we've got two grass tracks, um, poly track, a couple of sand tracks. There's a, a track out the back. Um, it's just a nice little getaway sort of half-size one. You can use the beach. Um, Dean Benet's one of the other trainers, has a water walker we can use. So we mm. have plenty of plenty of, uh, of options. Mm. You've recently suffered the trauma of moving house. But you tell me Joe absorbed most of the punishment. Yeah, I was going to say trauma probably wasn't the right word because I didn't really, wasn't that traumatic for me. Yeah. Hey, Cliff, there's no lower job. No, no, and look, to be honest, I, I probably you know, should have done more than I actually did, if I'm honest, yeah. <laughs> Pricking your conscience. Yeah, probably is, actually, now that now that I'm sitting in Adelaide and Joe's still doing bits and pieces. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We mentioned India, who's now 23, uh, Harvey and Felix, 20 and 16, respectively. Any budding horse trainers among them? Uh, look, I probably, uh, I think I would sway them away from it, which is an unusual thing. I would try, but I, whether I succeed in time, I'm not sure. All of them love horses. India's a good polo player. Mm-hmm. Uh, she loves it. Um, fascinating to watch it because 
and I hope she's not offended, but sporting-wise, on the ground, couldn't care less about sport. You know, as a kid, she tried several things. Um, but winning or losing never bothered her. You put her on a horse and she becomes the most competitive person you'd see. You know, she'll cut someone off or run into them or whatever it is that they do. So this different person turns up. Mm. Uh, Harvey works with me every morning at the stables and he's doing he's at university doing business and finance. Uh, he loves it, as, as all the kids do, but he's a complete enthusiast. And Felix is at uh, boarding school and he's the same, a complete enthusiast. Um, great pedigree knowledge, things like that. So, no, they're, they're all involved, but it's probably been by osmosis sitting around the kitchen table as well. <laughs> now, Cliff, you've used many, many top riders with your horses over the years at home and in Singapore, and this is an unfair question. In your heart, has there been a favourite? Uh, yeah, probably, yes. But, yeah. You, but you're not telling me. Oh, no, I'll tell you, it doesn't make me at all. Um, uh, Michael Rod. Good. Yeah, no, he's, uh, I think because in, in Singapore you do build a big relationship with them mm-hmm. and you do see them most days of the week. He's just one of life's really good people. Mm. And, you know, I wouldn't train them well, he wouldn't ride them well, and I think, we might have had one half blow up one morning at track work and it was probably entirely my fault. Mm. And uh, that was it in five years. You you just, man, he's, you know, family's great. His wife's fantastic. We'd go for dinners, things like that. No, he's, um, he's a really special person, Michael. And he's a great rider. That's mm. the other thing, you know. For a guy who was so restricted with his weight, I mean, if he was riding today uh, with the weight scale the way it is, he'd be flying. Mm. No, he's just a, a tremendous rider. He's had health problems, Cliff, which are well documented. He's been out for many months now, and it's yep. to be sincerely hoped uh, he'll be back in the saddle, uh, you know, sooner rather than later. Do you have any information on that score? No, look, I don't know on that score. I know he's going really well and, and uh, he's progressing. Uh, but whether he rides again, you know, I think that the thing with Michael, and I'm you know, talking completely out of school, I don't know. But he's one of those people that's always invested in everything that he does. And I I think from a writing point of view, he's always been very keen to eventually teach writers, teach kids. Mm. Uh, and I think in that capacity, if he didn't want to go back to writing, and he may want to, I don't know, mm. um, he'd be brilliant as well because he is so well-spoken and so thoughtful and, you know, everything he does is very methodical. He'd be ideal in a mentoring role, wouldn't he? Yeah. Exactly so. He'd be brilliant. Well, Cliff Brown, you're only 52. You've got a wealth of experience under the belt. You're in a great spot at Mornington and you've got some very loyal owners behind you. All you need now, mate, is plain old racing luck. It seems to be the hardest thing to get at times too, doesn't it? But you're exactly right. You know, look, sadly though, you're exactly right. 52, that's dreadful, doesn't it? It's quite frightening. (laughs) Mate, I... I'm a lot more frightened than you are. (laughs) Great to catch up, Cliff. Thank you, Johnny. I've had a great time. First time that um, I've had the pleasure to conduct an interview with you and it's been a a great pleasure to have you on our podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Thanks for your time. Thank you, John. It's it's, it's been tremendous. And as I said, listening to you as a kid, it's fantastic to have a chat. 
Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world.